Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, I can't help but notice that you are recording in a new setting, a new office. Is that right? I, I am. I am. I have a new office, and it has a window, so I'm a, <laughs> I'm a happy, happy human. Yeah, the, the quality of light is different. I can see the corner of a little Richard Foreman poster in the background, which makes me happy. Which is actually the same poster you have, right? So we're like Richard Foreman poster buddies. I, I think that's that's a special thing. And we are joined also by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Hi, Harvey. Uh, I trust that your summer has been boring and relaxing and that you have no big news in your life. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is not true, Harvey. Yeah. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, I, I, uh, <laughs> Harvey, a couple of weeks ago, announced on Facebook that he is taking um, a new job at Boston University. You will become dean of the Boston University College of Fine Arts uh, in January. Congratulations, man. Thanks. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so I start January 1st. Uh, it will be great to have you in the neighborhood. Welcome to, you know, Team New England. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is a geographical realignment for the podcast. It has been a Midwestern axis with a New England satellite. Now those uh, those positions will be reversed. It's going to be recordings with lobster. It's going to be great. There we go. I like it. <laughs> We're going to have to come up with our first beach episode soon. <laughs> Today on the podcast, we have three exciting topics to talk about. We looked at the aesthetic framework generated by Animating Democracy. This is an arts advocacy organization that has released a detailed document presenting, uh, called Aesthetic Perspectives, presenting new criteria for evaluating artistic and performance work. We also read an essay by Heiner Goebbels, the German avant-garde composer and director. His essay, Research or Craftsmanship, Nine Theses on the Future of an Education for the Performing Arts, raises interesting questions about how training programs for artists should function in the 21st century. And we are excited to welcome Noe Montes to talk about the research that he and his colleagues and graduate students at Tufts University have been doing on the job market um, in recent years for PhDs in theater and performance studies. Before we get to those topics, um, a news roundup after a manner. We had a sort of summer hiatus, and so lots of things have happened. Uh, very recently, ATHA, the Association for Theater and Higher Education, had its 2017 conference in Las Vegas. That was um, the beginning of August this month. Our own Harvey Young was inaugurated as president of the association. So congratulations again, Harvey. <laughs> Thanks. Neither Sarah nor I could attend ATHA this year, but I was following it on Twitter, as I'm sure Sarah was as well. Um, how did it go? It went great. It went great. Uh, it was a wonderful conference. It was in Las Vegas at Planet Hollywood, and uh, it was Patty Ibarra's last conference as ATHA president. And you know, it was the culmination of a lot of the hard work that Patty has been doing in terms of advocating for uh, best practices around adjunct labor, uh, looking at you know how to revise 
and update membership categories to better reflect you know the status of members in our field. Uh, so it was just a chance for everyone to come together and to think about how to best improve theater and higher education. It was great. And the next one will be in Boston, and Atha, Atha 2018 will be in Boston. So the call for papers will come out sometime soon with a November deadline. Okay, that's great. We'll keep our eye out for that. More distantly or more, I guess, less recently this summer, there was a collectively signed essay in HowlRound called A Collective Call Against Critical Bias. Um, This was interesting to us partly because Sarah Warner was uh, centrally involved in writing that and getting it published, and it had to do with critical responses to Paula Vogel's play Indecent, among other things, and um, we would have liked to do a segment on that if we had been recording at that time. So to go to our first topic, we read this uh, really interesting document called Aesthetic Perspectives, Attributes of Excellence in Arts for Change. It is authored by uh, John Borstel, who is a Maryland-based um, artist in photography and performance and text, and Pam Corza, who is a co-director of Americans for the Arts, which is an advocacy group. Uh, I, I understand it as an ambitious collaborative effort to present new aesthetic criteria for the arts, including performance and theater, that integrate social justice objectives. And in introducing these uh, criteria or this new framework, they use the term arts for change to designate art that is oriented towards justice, civic engagement, and community development. This, I think, is really interesting. And as they point out in the document, there are ways of evaluating artistic production that sort of fall into familiar Western-oriented categories. And so there, this is an effort to provide different ways of thinking about what arts are, what they can do, and what makes them excellent. Running the risk of going on too long, I just want to name the 11 different ideas that they explore and lay out in detail. So they name 11, disruption, commitment, communal meaning, cultural integrity, risk-taking, emotional experience, sensory experience, openness, coherence, resourcefulness, and stickiness. All of these are things that can be thought about when describing the results of artwork, um, and they argue that this is not meant to be a sort of checklist that all good art has to have you know, each of these 11 things, but it's nonetheless meant to sort of reorient the way we think about arts. So I just had a couple of reactions that I'll put out there. Um, One, I thought that this was really interesting and promising because in my experience, students now are very interested in theater and performance for social change in um, Bawal, Friere. Um, You know, it also, though, puts me in mind of evaluative criteria as they come up in academia. Very frequently in theater and performance studies, the work of our colleagues who are artists needs to be evaluated for promotion, for funding, uh, for institutional support. And it occurs to me that this is a, a good step along the way towards providing ways that we can assign value consistently, transparently, and intelligently without just sort of saying, you know, was this produced at a large theater? Did this get good reviews? So I thought that those were two really interesting ways that this might come to bear in our work. I don't know, Harvey, Sarah, what did you guys think after spending time with this? Well, I I had many of the same thoughts that you did, panel. Um, 
Additionally, I thought this could be really useful in terms of thinking and talking to uh, students about evaluating their work and evaluating um, each other's work. Because I think that that whole question of assessment around like what is good and um, and what do we like, you know, often or what works is a phrase that I've used. You know, often it's hard to get that too much away from taste. And I think one of the things that the that the document does really well is to offer some alternative language to something that you like because it resonates with something that you're familiar with that someone told you was admirable or excellent or, or, or really good. I mean, I think their, their whole setup of like an alternative aesthetics or an alternative aesthetic framework is a really helpful way just to kind of shift the, the focus of what, what we prefer and why to thinking more broadly about what is this piece doing in the world and, and what value does it have in any one of a number of different domains. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, what I personally found valuable from this document uh, is the list of questions, like the uh, you know, ideas to consider, you know, such as like one example is like, how are the artists connected to the community that is the focus of the work? I mean, so so it's, it offers these thoughtful questions that, you know, whether you're a practitioner in the process of making a piece or if you're a person trying to evaluate its uh, effectiveness, you know, it gives you a lens into it beyond just the surface level assumption that uh, the work is inherently important because it's aiming to bring about or spur activism. Yeah, I, I agree. In other words, it, I thought it did a good job of providing a clear way of understanding how we might judge work that has good intentions. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it also seems to provide a good alternative to a reflexive impulse that at least I see students having which is efficaciousness. In other words, you know, if you have a, a, a theater project that goes into the community and tells um, stories about social conflict or injustice, there's a impulse I think that students have, which is to say, well, did this work or not? Right. And that is very hard to determine <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I, I'm reminded of um, Baz Kershaw's book, The Politics of Performance, which is a really sophisticated look at how political performance works or doesn't and why it's so difficult to really say what has happened. Um, but this framework, I think, gives you a way out of saying, well, did this improve society or not? What I thought was really interesting here was the reclaiming of the language of aesthetics, yes. and the and the and the the plural and the uh, the you know exploring the multiplicities within that right. So the idea that that for one piece of work, I think one of the examples they do you know if that you look at ballet through the lens of Butoh dance, you're going to think, wow, this really sucks as Butoh dance. <laughs> um, and that you know, I mean, I think there's it's it's difficult because on the one hand, you know, if you you know, the, one of the things that the document says is, okay, so we have to take every work of art on its own terms right. and sort of look for, okay, so what is the aesthetic framework of this? And this, this of course, takes us back to Goethe's three questions of art criticism, right? What is the, you know, artist trying to do? Um, you know, are they successful? And, uh, you know, was it worth doing? But then to recognize that when we think about was it successful, and what was the artist trying to do, or was it was it worth it? That that is, those are all always ideological questions, and that there we're always approaching it from a certain perspective. And so, what this document I think tried to do was not to dismiss the question of aesthetics or beauty or 
those kinds of value judgments in different works or to reduce it simply to was this politically or socially efficacious or did it have good intentions or not or was it on the the right side of a particular political line but was to say like okay when we start looking at these values of aesthetics how can we multiply those and then put them together in different configurations for different works so that we begin to understand the work on its own terms but also in a larger framework both socially but also in terms of its ideas and its concepts and its histories and I thought that for me made it uh, a, a little bit more of a sophisticated and a really uh, a really valuable document that I would take to my students. Yeah I think the engagement with aesthetics uh, per se was an interesting part of this partly I imagine because I studied the 18th century and my scholarly mind is so programmed by my familiarity with that area of the Western tradition. It was interesting to me how pleasure was not a a term that seemed really central in this. And of course, I think that's deliberate. But I also think that pleasure is one of those things that runs through a lot of aesthetic frameworks, including non-Western frameworks. When you read Zayami on uh, no drama, when you read uh, Bharata Muni in the Natya Shastra, they are concerned with how the performance work pleases the audience. In fact, and, and actually in Indian classical aesthetics, in Vedic aesthetics, pleasure is very important. So it was interesting to me to see in all of these different categories, a lot of really important concepts and some that lend themselves to pleasure, right? Sensory experience, yeah. emotional experience, coherence. These are things that are informed by aesthetic traditions, including the Western ones, but the document doesn't seem to be dwelling on why we get pleasure from looking at certain works of art and not others. Also, I think the complexity of it, the 11 different categories, makes it a little bit unwieldy. It it, it provides ways of evaluating all sorts of different work and saying, okay, this is the way, you know, this had more cultural integrity, whereas this other thing had more... Resor- stickiness. Yeah, stickiness or whatever. <laughs> This wasn't really sticky enough. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't know. What, what did you guys think? In other words, did it change the way you thought about what aesthetics means? What I found probably most useful from this uh, is the series of examples at the end. You know that I'm not. You know that creates a sense of coherence because you can you know see the one million bones project uh, where artists created lots of bones, <laughs> you know, fake bones, you know, and spread them across the mall to uh, raise awareness about uh, genocide in, in the Congo uh, and Sudan. You know, so I found that to be really, really interesting uh, in terms of the larger framework, in terms of thinking about aesthetics. I felt like it was a bit of a cheat uh, that what the authors are doing is they're saying there's this condensed, shortened, simplified notion of aesthetics, you know, that is delimiting uh, and that they wanted mm-hmm. to broaden the category. But my, my core feeling is that aesthetics and s- aesthetic theory is, was sufficiently capacious already uh, to account for the work that's being done. It's just kind of using aesthetics um, as commonly understood as a bit of a straw man. So that was my critique here. Yeah, I, 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 I see what you mean by that, because there's a sort of critique they set up in the beginning, which is to say that, you know, conventional aesthetic categories are very often from the Western tradition and associated with colonial domination. And so here we'll, we'll widen it out. But there's not a lot of direct engagement with the aesthetic tradition per se. It's other, well, it's other ways to talk about whether work is good or not. But again, I, I mean, I think it's important to remember who 
you know, uh, who the audience is for this, like who's who's reading this. That's a good point. And I, it's not it's not for a scholarly audience who's who's thinking through the the finer points of <laughs> aesthetics in their historical you know context. It's it's as I understood it, it's really about. Um, I mean, well, I mean, who's reading it? Probably funders and people who are talking to to donors about what is good work and what's worthwhile work. And and to a certain extent, I felt like there was a little bit of a uh, directive to critics and the type of criticism that people are making about different kinds of work. And I think I think there is a very real concern about a kind of bifurcation between, you know, aesthetic, elite, dominant culture, right, high art kind of products that are seen as outside the realm of social yes. engagement. And that is part of what gives them their cultural cachet. And then and then works that might be you know, a varying quote unquote aesthetic quality or excellence, but that are meaningful because they're sort of in there doing the good work. And so I think this this document was in in, in a way an attempt to speak to the audiences that have been involved in those practices, programmers, curators, funders, um, and, and people working in development and, and critics to try and complicate that boundary so as to create a conceptual space for aesthetic considerations of socially engaged work that didn't automatically dismiss it as such because it wasn't adhering to, you know, 18th century uh, romantic ideas of beauty or, you know, of European ideas of right, beauty. Right, that makes sense. Um, why don't we leave that there and move on to our next topic, which had some interesting points of connection with this as well, though it's coming from an artist and very much talking about training of artists. The composer and director Heiner Goebbels has an essay in a new collection of his writing called Research or Craftsmanship, Nine Theses on the Future of an Education for the Performing Arts. Sarah, would you start us off just by giving us a bit of an overview of what this essay says and why you think it's interesting? Sure. This, uh, this essay is from a collection, a relatively recent collection of Goebbels' work, uh, his writings called Aesthetics of Absence, Texts on Theater. And it's edited by Jane Collins uh, with consulting from Nicholas Till and translated by David Rosner and Christina M. Logau. And I, I had picked this up a, a, a while ago, and um, I, I, I love Goebbels' work. I, I saw his um, Schuster's Dinge uh, uh, several years back, and um, um, among other things, I just think he's kind of an amazing, interesting thinker and, and, and artist. And as I, this, this semester, I'm preparing a new course uh, with sort of an intro, very broad intro course called The Art of Performance. And so as I was flipping through the book, I came across this essay um, that really, for me, speaks to a lot of the, the questions that, that theater and performance studies, particularly uh, at the undergraduate level, I think, uh, kind of some of the questions we're asking ourselves, which is really, what are we training? What, are we, what is the point of teaching theater uh, in, at the undergraduate level? And for me, what is the point of teaching theater and performance in a small liberal arts college, right, in the liberal arts context? And so the title really hit me of research or craftsmanship. And, and one of the things that Goebbels talks about doing that I think is really powerful is he talks about um, that training, and he's, of course, coming out of and writing and, and speaking to the German system, which is distinct but has certain overlaps with, with other 
formal training systems, is he's really speaking against the the kind of conservatory research divide, right? So he's he's he thinks that that is a, a is a false and and not very helpful division, um, and that the training that we give students ought not to be making people an artist in our own image or according to established practices, but really trying to facilitate how to help students and young artists cultivate their own individual aesthetics and then realize that within theater. There are nine sections, um, all of them very sort of pithy and direct, but one of my favorite and what what I'll be highlighting for my students comes in, in section three. And it, section three begins with um, the opening line, time is precious. <laughs> and so he talks about how whatever we spend time on becomes the priority because we're always limited in the time we have. And then he goes on and, and, and says basically that in order to kind of really do well in the field, you need to give yourself time to look at other stuff. Yes. So he says, we should empower students to thinking about the changing notions of art and and their role and, and what they're making and why. And he says, this takes time to read, to reflect theoretically on what you're working on, to listen to contemporary music, to go to museums, to watch, experience, and experiment with neighboring arts and current performative strategies. And so that for me is like, gonna, that's gonna become like the highlight sort of moment of my of the introduction to my course right which is that if you're studying this it has to be in the context of seeing and thinking and reading and listening to a whole lot of other things and figuring out what is it that you want to say and do and then how do you get the tools that you need in order to do that I agree that that was my favorite part uh, of of this fascinating essay because it's really about not trying to create a pre-packaged student uh, you know sort of a cookie cutter mold uh, that then gets replicated again and again. And there was this sense of like, how do you cultivate the individuality, the uniqueness, uh, the particular voice of a student? And it's about immersion. It's about the chance to go across discipline. It's about it's about going to see as much art as possible and cultivating your own taste and then bringing that into play into the classroom uh, rather than it being given to you. So I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, it reminded me of thoughts that I've had about MFA actor training. There does seem to be a way in which, especially for performer training, acting training, that you know, an incoming class will have all sorts of interesting instincts and talents, and then at the end of three years, they're highly polished and make choices that are a lot like the choices that the other ones in the class are making and a lot like the choices that their instructors are making. And of course, that's the sort of trade-off that comes with having pedagogical rigor in an advanced training program. And I will also add, it's that lesson is actually applicable to all sorts of training. PhD students often emerge writing and speaking a lot like their advisors. And in a way, it's what it's a structural feature of education at a high level that you specialize and you end up replicating your training. And part of what was interesting to me about this was the comparison between the German the German environment and the American environment. My sense, and I don't really know Germany that well, but my sense of a sort of European model is that the professional artists tend to go into training academies at a young age and that people who go to you know, get university degrees like a BA here are not necessarily being trained for the professional world. And that Goebbels thinks that the artist training path is too rigid, you know, sort of shuts down 
aesthetic ex- experimentation. And so I guess I guess the question I have for you guys is to what extent do you think that Goebbels would also be critiquing the way MFA education works in the United States or BFA education works in the United States if he was here? Because he does seem to be talking about the German case. In terms of thinking about what its applications are for, for the U.S., I actually think that in, in many institutions, even the BFA and, and MFA, we, we in the U.S. still do have a much more, a much less specialized system of education. Um, I mean, even compared to the U.K., you know, you can get a kind of, you know, specialized training degree within what we consider to be a university. You know, we haven't completely separated uh, you know, universities from conservatories, whereas there are lots of programs in, in the UK and, and Europe where, I mean, the institutions are very separate, right? So when, when Goebbels is talking about how do you kind of cross these lines, you know, it's 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 not walking across campus. It's, you know, going to a different city, you know, in terms of what, what an institution is doing. And yet I think that there are ways in which the U.S. system has has its own kind of entrenched lines and, and this comes up in the discussion of silos or, you know, the MFA versus the PhD track and debates about how much practical training, uh, and then maybe this will come up, you know, when we talk with Noe about, but how much practical training should PhD students have? How much theoretical history do MFA uh, students need? And I think some of the, the larger, bigger things for me are the way in which Goebbels is talking about how do we if we weren't weren't kind of trapped into those those lines, how would we th- rethink the entire system? And for me, there's a key a key phrase at the end of uh, um, at the end of uh, his fifth thesis where he says, "Laboratories, uh, this is what we need is which is laboratories in which it is possible to work with all the theatrical means, mm-hmm. all events, sim- all elements simultaneously from the very beginning." Um, isn't it just like with a car? A new car won't be invented at the assembly line. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that if you could put everything in the room mm-hmm. at once, you know, so that the actor has design and sound and media, all of those things together, I think, you know, then what do you start to to, to think about? It made me wonder if part of what the objective might be here is variety of different training programs as opposed to a complete overhaul of all training programs. And again, maybe this is more this speaks more to the American case because America is a larger country and we have lots of different competitive BFA and MFA programs. So I guess one way of thinking about this is is there stylistic homogeneity? In other words, if you take a BFA graduate of Juilliard and give them the same role as a graduate of DePaul, is there going to be a kind of American psychological style that Goebbels would identify as being like the thing he doesn't like in German training? And similarly, at the MFA pro- at the MFA level, you know, I, I have the sense, the received sense that, for example, the Columbia University MFA generates directors and artists that are more comfortable with the kind of avant-garde, post-dramatic style that Goebbels enjoys, and that there might be diversity among the sort of aesthetic priorities and pedagogical systems that different academies use in the, in the United States. In other words, shouldn't we be content with programs that really train excellent sort of post-Stanislavskian psychological actors and then other academies that train wild-eyed avant-gardists? I don't I mean, I, I don't think that the divide is that stark 
And in my experience, it seems to me that within most graduate training programs uh, and even undergraduate training programs, students are moving, even within a department, across different types of of pedagogy um, and different styles and training techniques, right? So it's not the case where you're, uh, you know, on a single track, you know, that's free of the influences of other methods of practice, right? You know, and I think that that is something that's a little bit different here. Uh, so that if you're in a BFA program or a BA program, you're still attending to different approaches to acting, different approaches to uh, vocal instruction, uh, different uh, practices of speech as well, uh, in addition to you know, a range of theater history classes. And in my experience, it's the theater history part, which is often the least predictable across <laughs> universities. So in some places you get the avant-garde experimental training and other places you don't get the same thing. Uh, but, I, I, but, but it's that aspect that creates the variety and difference that allows for there to be uh, various paths in terms of approaches for student actors. I mean, I think it's, all, it's very difficult to talk about what, what the American style is absent a consideration of, you know, who and, you know, what, what theaters are we training for? I mean, the, the state-funded theaters in Germany actually accommodate and produce a, an incredible variety of, of work uh, of, of the avant-garde. I mean, in some ways, like, you can sort of, like, scratch your head a little bit at what, what Goebbels is complaining about in the German system if you actually go and see a lot of German theater, right? Point. I mean, it looks a lot more different from each other and a lot more different from, you know, other North American traditions than, than you know, going on a tour of regional theaters around the United <laughs> States would, right? So, so in some ways, it's like the, the capitalist filter, right, that takes whatever diversity there is... <laughs> in training programs and like kind of like <laughs> you know turns us into like hamburger right so but i think that so i think in terms of practical terms you know we can sort of quibble uh, in a variety of ways for me i think what's helpful is to kind of tap into the 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 concepts and the ideas as aspirational mm-hmm. and inspirational including his emphasis on absence you know, he has this great line uh, that I, I'm sure my students will, will, I'll be curious what they make of it, but it says, um, he says, the theater does not need artists with visions, mm-hmm. which if you've seen his pieces, you're kind of like, hmm, that's strange. Uh, it is not important what happens on stage. Yeah. <laughs> it is not even important what we show on stage, but rather what we hide mm-hmm. to enable the audience to make their own discoveries. And if I can have my students thinking about what is there in performance to be discovered and what do they make that they do not show? You know, especially for, you know, uh, they are what most of us were, right? I mean, we're just dying to like show what we can do in front of the footlights, Mm -hmm. you know, and you just gotta let me in front of that crowd and then they will see how amazing I am. I think that idea of restraint and and hidden and creating opportunities for an audience, I think, is a really important idea. So that, among other things, is what I'm really excited about teaching in this essay. I circled that line too. That it's not important what happens on. It's it's not even important what we show on stage, but what we hide. What I thought of was not so much the you know decision to work really hard on something and then not show it, but it was a kind of like theatrical equivalent of Garfield without Garfield. Have you seen this thing mm-hmm. online? It's so, oh, yes. Someone has photoshopped a bunch of Garfield comic strips and just taken Garfield <laughs> out of them. And, and the result is this sort of spare, haunting 
portrait of a man in deep depression and existential <laughs> crisis like you know it's 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 kind of amazing yeah, and so that there's a kind of aesthetic aesthetics of absence of emptiness of waiting that he's making the point for so i thought that that it was great to read it for that reason as well listeners we are now very fortunate to be joined by noe montez um, Noe is associate professor in the Department of Drama and Dance at Tufts University. He is the director of graduate studies for the PhD program in theater and performance studies. Um, and uh, I believe, Noe, your book uh, has just come out, um, Memory, Transitional Justice and Theater in Post-Dictatorship Argentina. So congratulations. Thanks so much. It will be out in November, just in time for ASTR. Excellent, excellent. We will look for it on the tables. And um, for the party. Absolutely. I'm talking with Heather <laughs> Nathans about planning that already. Um, so, Noe, we're really happy to, to welcome you to the podcast, and we wanted to ask you about um, some of the research that you and your colleagues and students have been doing at Tufts about the job market. Um, Harvey, do you want to sort of get us started with some questions? Yeah, absolutely. We noticed, uh, you know, thanks to the magic of Twitter, which I'm relatively new to, <laughs> that uh, you were posting uh, tweets about some research that uh, you and Heather Nathans um, have conducted uh, relating to you know, the experiences of PhD students. And can you tell us a bit more about uh, the work you're doing? Sure. So there are two different surveys that are happening. Uh, I'm working with two of my graduate assistants to get a sense for what the uh, job ads and uh, the hiring practices of colleges and universities across the country are actually looking like. So uh, this involves my two assistants and I scouring through ArtSearch, uh, the Chronicle, higher ed jobs, any of the places that post positions in theater and performance studies and looking for positions that seem to be geared specifically towards scholars who are engaged in theater history and performance studies, as opposed to more practice-based ads. Yes, yes. And as we're reading through those ads, we're taking a tally of what courses are specifically being requested from applicants in the job ads, what sorts of expertise uh, the positions would like the person to hold, and uh, any other information that we can use as data. And now I'm in the process of going through various university web pages and course catalogs to try to get a sense of who actually got hired in those positions for 2016, 2017, so that I can get a sense of what skill sets they bring to those positions and uh, how uh, any other information that I can pick up about who they are. Um, Heather, uh, working with a number of people, including uh, Diana Lucer at Stanford, Eero Lane, and Danielle Rosvalli at University of Buffalo, um, Stephanie Woodson at Arizona State, and a few others whose names I'm surely going to forget because that's not my study, um, is working, I just finished a larger survey for ATHA in conjunction with ATHA and ASTER to get a sense of what the state of the contingent job market looks like. 
So she asked for uh, people who had finished their PhDs within the past five years to fill out a survey that many of you may have seen uh, get sent out through ATHA and ASTER's various e-lists uh, to give a sense of how long folks are spending on the market, uh, how much time they are fun working as contingent laborers, um, information about the ways that their doctoral programs are training folks for careers within and beyond the academy, and uh, trying to do some data gathering in that way. And having looked at all these job ads uh, from the past, you know, what are some of the takeaways? What have you learned? One of the things that's most surprising to me is uh, the number of positions who are, that are really looking for scholars uh, grounded in modern and contemporary work, um, let's say from the mid-19th century to the present. Um, uh, looking over who has been hired and what positions are requesting over the past five years now, uh, it seems as though nearly 90% of ads, over 90% of ads and the people who end up hired in those positions are going to folks working in more modern and contemporary theater. Uh, I know that this group has talked about theater as being a sort of presentist discipline before. Guilty. That really <laughs> emphasized it for me. Uh, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, there are a number of theater and performance studies uh, positions that really are looking for someone who's got active and practical experience as a director. And I know that that's something that Tufts as a program uh, has, is thinking about more and more in terms of how we're structuring the PhD and giving our students opportunities to actually engage in production life so that they're better able to demonstrate that skill set when they go on market. That was something that was interesting to me from your uh, tweets after Atha, no way, which is that your sense is that um, most of the positions for PhD, they request or require the ability to direct in the season. Do you get the sense that that is in smaller programs or departments or smaller schools? That was surprising to me, maybe just because I'm working at a place where um, PhD faculty aren't obligated to, to direct. It's, uh, this is me generalizing rather than looking at hard data to know that just yet, but I would guess that, uh, yes, the vast majority of positions where uh, the ad specifically requires directing as part of the, the job requirements uh, tend, tend to be small liberal arts schools or um, you know, regional universities across the United States uh, where you know, these happen to be departments that range from one to five or six people. And so there's a greater sense of the production responsibility that every faculty member has to take on. But I'm also finding that those are the kinds of positions that are uh, most likely to draw a candidate and hire somebody who's directly out of a PhD program. Um, uh, so in other words, it's, it's, it may not be they may be happy to have a, a strong PhD candidate who is able to direct, though doesn't have extensive professional experience or training directing. Is that right? That's right. 
I'm I'm reminded of um, the the brouhaha that emerged in the Chronicle a few years back about whether you needed a PhD or an MFA to teach uh, college uh, and university, and I, and and the the do you remember this essay, right? The ar- the argument was like, oh, why would you spend time and energy getting a PhD um, when you could more more likely to get hired with the MFA? Are you did you look at comparisons between uh, specifically MFA, uh, you know, or, or um, I mean, how open were these were these ads, and would they would they have been, you know, calling theater history, uh, you know, was the PhD a requirement, or uh, did they have other kinds of language like, you know, MFA or PhD uh, with professional? you know, X, Y, and Z. Like, I think there's a little bit of a difference between like the MFA plus and the PhD plus. Yes. Like, are they hiring an MFA who are, you know, an MFA who can teach theater history? Or are they teaching a theater historian who can direct every so often in the season? And, and how do you, how do you tease out the difference in that emphasis in, in at the level of the ad or the department? So there were about 130 assistant professor positions in theater studies posted on the various websites. Um, of those 130 or so positions, uh, my grad assistants and I looked at about 60, just shy of 60 positions that seem to be geared specifically towards somebody with a PhD, as opposed to positions that wanted somebody to teach one of the design components or acting and directing. Was that 130 number for one job market cycle or over several years? Uh, the, the Those were ads posted in the 16-17 academic year for positions beginning in 17-18. Okay, thank you. And that's only tenure stream uh, assistant professor level positions. Uh, we excluded searches that were geared towards associates or full professors, and also for the sake of time, any uh, visiting or lecturer positions. And so, uh, what we were looking for were ads where the ad explicitly said PhD required or the list of courses uh, seemed to indicate that uh, the preferred candidate would be somebody with a PhD. And in compiling the, the data of who's getting hired, and I'm somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 60% done with that for this past cycle, uh, it, it seems as though we were pretty accurate about that. I'd say uh, of the 35 or so jobs that I've accurately charted, uh, only three of them have gone to folks with MFAs, uh, the rest to folks with PhDs. And I'm not sure if you know this or not, but of those with PhDs, uh, were there a significant number who also had MFAs, having both MFAs and PhDs in their portfolio? That I don't know yet. Uh, I've been looking at the um, theater journal list of PhDs, PhD dissertations in progress. And I've also been having my graduate assistants track the names of folks listed in the dissertations in progress section of theater journal, as well as uh, reading through the, the various program websites to get a sense of who is in the ABD stage. Mm-hmm. And it seems as though as a, a discipline, the roughly 40 or so theater and performance studies programs are putting out somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 to 100 PhDs a year consistently. And that seems to hold true over the past five years up through 11, 12. My guess 
is that is that there are about 50 to 60 tenure track assistant professor positions posted a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, hey, that's 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 a pretty good ratio, certainly compared to folks in English literature, romance languages, history. Uh, yeah, yeah. But the, I, I also want to make clear that that doesn't assume that all of those positions are hiring fresh out of the gate uh, graduate students. Uh, I'm finding about seven to 10% of those positions uh, end up going to folks who are moving laterally from one assistant professorship to another. Uh, There are some percentage, and I'm still trying to get a sense of that because that's the hardest to figure out whether that are failed searches. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would guess that uh, looking at the past two years of data, it's going to show that roughly 40 to 45 of those uh, no, 60, okay, let's rephrase that. Let's say 75 to 80% of those assistant, assistant professor positions posted are actually going to graduate students who are either right out of the program or have done a year or two of adjunct work or contingent labor. So if we were to make these numbers work for us, what advice would you give to directors of graduate programs in terms of how to design a program to maximize the odds of one of their students landing one of these few tenure track jobs? So uh, I think there needs to be the incorporation of more visible production components. Uh, And by visible, I mean production credits that show up on a student's transcript or uh, that students can create a portfolio of images and documents from so that when they go on the market, they have these materials at the ready. Um, I also think that uh, programs would be well served to uh, start scaffolding in training uh, to talk about the ways that the work that we do in our PhD programs are legible for folks who may want to move into administrative positions, um, student affairs, uh, beyond the academy careers in editing, arts administration, management, the other things that a PhD program can do, and to find ways to make that legible in a transcript and give students the language to be able to talk about the work that they're producing in ways that might be um, accessible to potential hires who work outside of the academy. You mentioned also in in your tweets that um, you found that, at least to you, you thought that um, applicants in the job pool were applying to surprisingly few positions per year. So it's understandable that people would want to restrict themselves to a region for, you know, a variety of reasons. But is your advice to your graduate students to apply as widely as you can? Yes. Uh, And this is probably one of the most difficult things to parse out in the uh, survey that Heather sent through Atha and Aster, uh, because uh, some of the people who filled out the survey already have tenure track or uh, positions, others didn't. uh, And so what the survey shows is that the average person uh, is applying to somewhere in the neighborhood of I want to see if I can find the exact number, uh, 12 positions per year. Uh, And 
when I posted that, a number of people responded immediately to to speak about the fact that they're actually applying to, you know, in some cases, 50 to 75 positions a year. year. Um, uh, And that certainly seems true of uh, my own experience when I was on the job market, you know, six, seven years ago. Um, So uh, one of the things that Heather and her team want to do as they continue pursuing this research is to really parse out the difference between folks who already have positions and aren't applying at all and those who don't to really get a clearer sense of what the number is. Because I would guess that all of those zeros are really bringing the curve down quite a bit. It it would seem that these ratios, and it's interesting to hear that you may suspect that the theater and performance studies is doing better with those ratios than other big fields. I think that sounds right to me. Um, But nonetheless, there's no way to avoid that if you have so many more people seeking the tenure track job than tenure track jobs are available on a year by year basis, you're gonna have a couple of phenomena. One is fewer people ultimately getting those jobs um, as a ratio of how many people have the degree and also people spending more time between completing their PhD and getting the um, tenure track job. So you mentioned people spending an average of two years on the market, some as long as seven years. I guess the question I have is, do you, are you looking, or do you know if um, Heather is looking at postdocs, interdisciplinary postdocs as being you know, an important part of that job search or that career trajectory? Do you think that people in our field are seeking those out and getting those? Uh, so I can't say that based on the data that Heather has created. I, I think that's another possible direction for her to go. But I can say anecdotally that here at Tufts, we're increasingly encouraging students to apply for some of the big national postdocs that, uh, in hopes that they can land them and start to do work that will uh, better prepare them to have research ready when they go on the market, either in a book proposal stage or with a book already written, or or just to have the opportunity to develop their critical thinking and writing beyond what they can do at the dissertation level. Did anything surprise you in this? I mean, I, reading through your, you know, your, your tweet thread, it sounds like a lot of this kind of conforms to what you had been thinking about already and, and questions that you and other people have been raising. I'm just curious if anything sort of really, st- you know, stuck out to you? The thing that stuck out to me most was the uh, number of applications for full-time positions. And, and we've talked already about how that data might not be reading correctly. Uh, but uh, seeing that and hearing anecdotes from folks who teach in places like uh, Utah or Indiana or, you know, a, a lot of non-coastal states uh there does seem to be some evidence uh, anecdotally that they are uh, receiving fewer applicants than uh positions for institutions uh along the coast or in what we might think of as major urban centers i have a question about production experience because i'm assuming that you know there's a premium uh, or a benefit attached to directing experience, but what are your thoughts about production dramaturgy? Like, does production dramaturgy as a component of graduate education make anyone more likely to land one of these tenure track jobs that requires production experience? So, of the 
job ads dating back to 2012, we're only finding that somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 7% of them are specifically uh, requesting dramaturgy as a, a requirement within the production season. Now, uh, there are a number of posts that ask for people to teach dramaturgy courses, uh, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean involvement or engagement in the production season. And I don't know uh, whether that bears I don't know how much production dr dramaturgy experience is actually informing who does or doesn't get hired into those positions. I wonder, you know, there's a part of me that wants to ask for a sort of upbeat place to, <laughs> <laughs> to end this discussion. I mean, is there anything, you know, when you're when you're coaching your graduate students or sharing this data with them, what what is the thing you tell them at the end of the day that's going to keep their uh, their motivation level high and their and their confidence high? Every grad student should find the, the one thing that is unique to their experience that uh, separates them from the you know, 70 to 80 other folks who are applying for a position. Uh, and uh, sometimes what you think might be the, 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 the unique factor, the thing that helps you stand out doesn't read that way when I'm looking through cover letters or other materials. Uh, so it's important to work with a faculty mentor or a cohort of fellow uh, graduate students to, to make sure that your documentation is communicating that aspect of your persona or research or practical experience or whatever it is that might be that makes you distinct. Well, Noe, thank you again so much for, for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And I know that our listeners will really uh, enjoy hearing from you as well. Sure thing. Thanks to all of you for having me on. Thank you. That's cool. We are now ready to share our drafts. Uh, these are things that we're thinking about, ideas kicking around in our heads, um, perhaps not fully formed projects, but what's been going on in our theater and performance studies brains recently. Sarah, what is your draft for this episode? Uh, so my draft uh, is a seasonal draft, um, uh, you know, <laughs> because it is uh, the most wonderful time of the year. Happy New Year, academics everywhere. Uh, as we begin, uh, you know, I, I don't know why people have parties in January, because this is really the beginning of the new year. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about, uh, you know, um, what's really great about starting uh, the new academic year is that I have not yet made any teaching mistakes. Uh, mainly because I have not yet had any classes. <laughs> and so I was just, I was actually going to, I was thinking about like, what's what's like one thing, you know, that I'm really excited for this this semester, one thing that I think I can, uh, you know, maybe improve upon. So, so my one thing, and then I'll be curious if you guys have anything you want to jump in here as well. I am going to try really hard to be very clear about uh, not just what I'm doing in, in my classes, but, but, but why. Um, and to, to try to get better at articulating why I make certain choices or why certain assignments. Because I, I consistently get, you know, it's not like an overwhelming response, but I get these little like tags of, I don't know why we did this. This seemed really pointless. And yet, if you, as I look at what students do over the course of the semester, I like, that doesn't look pointless to me at all. I can see how, you know, all, all of these assignments led up, but somehow that's not translating necessarily to all of my students. So. I'm trying to think about, okay, so how can I make my process of, uh, you know, of pedagogy 
more transparent and, and clearer so that students feel like they have an understanding and a stake in what we're doing. They may still think it's not the right thing to do, but they at least know some of my thinking behind it. I think that's really smart. And I, I think in my own teaching experience, I will spend some time in the class sort of reminding them of the purpose of the class and explaining what assignments are there for. And I think they they pay attention, students do, when I start talking in this way, and that it probably helps them digest the information as it comes along. There was also a great, a great thread on Twitter, which was like um, somebody saying, uh, it was a parent actually, an academic, but who was a parent saying, you know, my kid just graduated from high school and here's all the things they don't know. Um, you know, sort of get ready. Uh, and I, and I, I think there's, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot in there, like, you know, just not taking too much for granted of what your students know coming in the door. My um, draft is also seasonal, though in a different time frame. It's about the eclipse. The, the path of totality came quite near Wash U and quite near where I live in St. Louis. And so I was able to get out and see, you know, a minute and a half, minute, 45 seconds of totality. And it was wonderful. And it got me thinking in my theater and performance brain because it was this mass spectatorial event. I was in this field with a bunch of strangers and wearing glasses and looking up in the sky. And those kind of, you know, communal spectatorial experiences that you have were present. It, you know, put me in mind of recent themes in scholarship related to the the, the post-human in that the object, the performing object was um, celestial, had no agency, no psychology, it was nature, but in a way that is not just a sort of new um, uh, way of thinking about performance, but it's one of the sort of primordial ideas of of Western aesthetics to to bring it back to our first segment, which is that the, the sort of ideal performance object is nature or the ideal object of aesthetic contemplation is nature or imitations of it. And it was, you know, it was a very satisfying aesthetic experience, though it needed a dramaturg because um, after totality was done, you're still in the middle of this field on a very hot day. And there's another, you know, hour and a half of slowly dwindling partial eclipse. (laughs) Um, But that uh, I I give it a big thumbs up. Harvey, what do you have for us? Well, it's still summertime <laughs> for me right now. <laughs> You're like, stop asking. I don't want to think about it. And I have four it. more weeks until <laughs> classes begin. And really, I'm just trying to finish up some uh, publishing projects. Uh, you know, one edited book and one book I'm writing. Uh, but what keeps creeping up in the background, it's on the horizon, it's sort of unavoidable, uh, is not only preparing for the transition in terms of me leaving Northwestern to go to BU, but specifically part of that transition involves finishing up some projects at Northwestern in terms of launching a new uh, MFA program, doing some construction oversight work on a downtown space, but then also you know, dealing with you know, sort of the new things that are coming my way through BU. So it's just one of those things where it's like, as I'm trying to get my own writing done, being a mindful of of my obligations to two different institutions. So for Harvey, it's the celestial bodies like really converging and <laughs> yes. crashing upon him rather than one yes. blotting out the sun. It's like both are crushing, <laughs> right? It's, yes. you know, down yes. upon. December will the sun be and the moon. Yeah. He has like a real cosmic, you know, <laughs> issue going on over there. Yeah. 
Um, well, guys, uh, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be um, recording with you again. And listeners, thank you. And you'll hear from us again soon. We've got some special things coming up for the podcast. Bye. Thanks, Bye. Farewell. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.